Greetings, grave robbers, and welcome back to the television graveyard. I am your TV necromancer, TV's Noah Houlihan. We have gathered here tonight to exhume the body of past television shows to see which ones could be resurrected, should be resurrected, and which one should just stay doomed. This is a podcast where we analyze the history, the hype, and the aftermath of television shows that ran only one season, or perhaps only one episode, or aired after Watershed because they have lots of nudity in it and could not sustain being on television. Let's get back to the Blood Drive! Welcome back to Blood Drive. So, real quick, uh, I just want to say this. Uh, The first episode of Blood Drive was immediately slapped down by YouTube. So there might be less clips in this. Uh, the second episode went off without a hitch, but the first episode had some had some issues. That's why it had to be re-uploaded again in an audio-only version. So we'll see what happens with this as we will be covering episodes 8, 9, and 10. And then we'll read evaluate if we're going to cover the rest of them based on how much time. You guys don't need to know that part. Anyway, let's get back to the blood drive. It's time for episode eight, A Fistful of Blood. Guys, it's a Western now. We've gone full spaghetti Western. We have all this typical uh, Western sound effects, and everything kind of has this yellowy tint to it now, giving it that old West feel. Going to be honest, uh, I think this is a mistake. I think after what happened with the previous episode, episode seven, where we had the what I say is the worst episode and also my favorite episode, where you see what happens to the blood drive without its artist, without Slink at the helm, how it turns to literal shit. Uh, I feel like this episode, we should be returning to form and we should be staying on the blood drive. But spoiler alert, we will not be returning to the blood drive at all in this episode of Stay Doom. These are three episodes that kind of take place outside of the blood drive. So we'll see how we feel about it. Uh, Also, uh, I just want to do a little different uh, in terms of programming here. I'm going to run through the Arthur and... um, Grace storyline, and then I'll come back and we'll do the Christopher stuff. So we're not doing this jumping back and forth thing. It works on the show. It's hard for a podcast. So Arthur, Barbie, that's uh, Arthur, uh, Grace, and the scholar, since the gentleman is now dead, are going through the desert. And Arthur can't help but notice that there are no other racers around. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Guys. Let's pour one out. I apologize for not pouring one out. Uh, I am seated here today with with my drink. I am going to finish a fine bottle of whiskey. Cheers. I'm going to be honest with you. The bottle of whiskey I am finishing was basically empty. It's probably a shot and a half of whiskey. But I'm just going to be sipping some whiskey as I get through this. So I might get real sloppy towards the end of this. Get excited. 
That will make sense as we talk about this very episode. So they're driving through the desert and they notice that there's not any other racers around. It is because Slink has sent them somewhere else. They're going to Red Bank, I want to say. Red Bank is, is where they're headed. And as they are flying down the road, uh, they are pulled over by a cop. And Grace sees this as a great opportunity to fill up the car. But because Arthur works for Contra Crime, he sees himself as a police officer. He's not going to do that. Cop walks over. Very classic, like, mirrored sunglasses, hat, police officer. And kind of yells at them for speeding. But it's also the first time that they've seen a cop this entire time other than Arthur. So they're a little suspicious the whole time. The cop keeps asking the scholar if he's okay, but he always says, are you okay, ma'am? And I find this really weird. The characterization of the scholar is very confusing in this episode. So we'll get to that as we go through. Uh, It turns out this cop needs a favor. And as the only sheriff in town, if they want to get through this area, they have to help this cop with their problem. The cop then tells them where they need to go, heads back to his car, takes off his sunglasses to reveal he has no eyes. Gross. Now, when they get to the town, they're told that they have to leave their car outside, which they find is a bit strange. When they walk through the city gates, suddenly they feel weird. They have walked through an EMP field. Where they are, there is no electricity. People use horses. People use mills. People use washboards. It's kind of like an old west town. But in walking through an EMP, that means that the bombs in the back of their neck are now deactivated. So they meet this girl uh, who, I think her name's Nicole, but I always call her the Tinkerer. And, because she likes to tinker, uh, she removes the bombs from the back of her neck of all three of our contestants here, of Arthur, Grace, and the Scholar. And then the Scholar sees a car and goes, My God, you know what this is? This is a nuke fusion. This is a beta of a nuclear power sedan. They only made 12. Oh, wowzers. This is a nuclear power car, and he's just stunned to be in its presence. And the tinkerer is like, yeah, I know it's worth a lot of money, but I'm not going to sell it. It's a thing of beauty. And you see, like, this immediate relationship starting to bloom here between the scholar and the tinkerer. Tinkerer's the bad guy from the Spider-Man video game, right? I just want to talk! Smith! Tinkerer! Stop! So you can steal my newborn? Not a chance in hell! Well, she's cool, alright? In, in Blood Drive, she's cool. So, the sheriff explains that they're near the Scar, which if you don't remember... Uh, is a fracking accident that has caused a rip in Central America, Central United States of America, not Central America, in the heartland of America, and 
basically a sickness comes out of it and it changes people. So there is a town, uh, or not even a town, a group of people is how it's explained, that are infected by the scar, that are living away from the town that needs to be brought to justice. And it's going to be Arthur's job to go undercover and infiltrate this town. Basically, that no one can get in because they have all the uh, energy. They have all the power. Uh, they use electrical weapons. And they have an electric fence, so they can't get through it. They want Arthur to sneak in, deactivate the fences, so they can make arrests. Uh, Arthur and Grace kind of like the town. <laughs> and now the, the bomb is deactivated in their neck. And they've been kind of set up in a very nice room. So they're like, you know, after this job, we could just stay here. Like, we don't need to return to the blood drive the things out of our neck. We could just stay here. Uh, but Arthur, of course, is, is driven by his want to take down Hart. So they can't, like, really play into that. But Grace goes and takes a bath and invites Arthur in. Grace really wants to spend some naked time with Arthur. Arthur uh, lets Grace know that she can't fuck the pain away of having lost her sister. And Grace responds, well, we could still try. But Arthur's not into it. He declines. And there's now like weird, awkward tension between our two heroes. We get another scene of the scholar and the tinkerer getting along. They're, they're flirting. And it's odd because this says some weird things about the scholar. Weird might not be the, wor the word. It just it questions some things because he was in a homosexual relationship with the gentleman. There has been really no discussion on what the scholar's actual sexuality is. So it's this weird thing of, oh, is he not actually gay? Is he bi? Was he just in a relationship with the gentleman because the gentleman took care of him? And that's not really his preference. There's like a lot of unexplored ideas here with the scholar. And we are not going to explore any of them. It is simply strange man who likes to fix things, find strange girl who likes to fix things, so they're in love. Which, I, I don't know, this part felt a little, like, cliche, and, like, it, it lacks the nuance. It's just kind of a convenient, eventual exit for the scholar, which I don't, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. So, Grace is upset and heads down to the bar, and it turns out they don't serve alcohol. They only serve really nice coffee. And I was going to do a coffee drink because of that. But then, all of a sudden, she is slid across the bar a bottle of whiskey. I'm going to take a sip right now. Mm. It's slid across the bar by Slink. And Slink's like, well, I think we need to have a talk. And Grace is like, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to drink this entire bottle of whiskey. And then I'm going to kill you. Slink's game. Now, we're going to spend most of the next couple minutes with Arthur. Uh, Arthur has to go under into this town and 
deactivate this, the the electric fence. And he's kind of like questioning his own morality. He's thinking back to his time with Christopher, I think just to kind of remind us that they were friends uh, and to show us Contra crime uh, in its like functioning days, because that's going to be important for Christopher's side of the story. And I want to point out that on the wall of Contra crime is a poster that reads, we kill because we care. And it's just like, wow. <laughs> it's just the, the messaging there is so clear. So Arthur basically comes up to the fence. He's got like a power pack and he's like, I need a charge. And then I'm heading out of here. I don't want any trouble. You know, I'll trade you water. And they're like, all right, we don't usually let people in here, but we'll let you in. And as he's walking through the town, he sees that the town is full of nice people. They're just kind of sitting around. They're watching TV. There are children everywhere. And he starts to second-guess himself. But the moment that the person who let him in plugs in the pack, it sucks all the power out of them. The fences go down. The police burst in. And it's immediate police brutality. People are getting nightsticks in the face. Everyone's getting arrested. Uh, Arthur's like, you can't be doing this. You said it was just an arrest. Uh, It's like, you're right. Don't kill anybody until we have the trial. Uh, They come back and uh, they're building gallows. So they're kind of acting like, oh, I think you know how this uh, trial is going to end. And the sheriff is like, keep talking, kid, and we'll hang you too. So Arthur realizes kind of the same way Contra crime was the facade of justice and good. This sheriff is the facade of justice and good, and it's innocent people who are suffering. So he finds himself basically in the same spot. That's like the parallels that we are going through here. Uh, They do this great thing where Arthur walks into the bar and clearly Slink and Grace are like mid-fight scene. And Arthur's like, Grace, I need to talk to you. I made a mistake. You're like, we don't care about your story right now. We're doing our own thing. Can you please leave? And Arthur leaves. Arthur is basically going to fight for these people who deserve a trial. Uh, And of course, the moment he starts fighting for them, he's arrested and they are going to hang him. They then do the thing where they cut to commercial. When we cut back, we watch a clock rewind and we go back to... The moment Slink has slid the bottle of whiskey to Grace, and we're now going to see this side of the story, which is, it's kind of unique that now we're doing this kind of like, instead of cutting back and forth and back and forth, it's like, all right, we're just going to tell each story one at a time, and then they'll all come together at the end. It's beautiful writing. Uh, So the two of them sit down. Uh, Grace questions her drink. Slink says, if I was going to poison you, I wouldn't waste good whiskey. And Slink basically explains, you know, why, how he started the blood drive, how it's his masterpiece. And what they have right now is like a showdown. And Grace, you can tell, is eyeing up a knife that's on a table. But Slink is playing his games. He's like... 
but look around, you little mythic. This here's a showdown. Who's going to draw first? And then the moment he starts to take a drink, Grace grabs a knife. They have a fight. Slink grabs the knife away and says, like, this isn't going to do anything for me. You need to understand I am a great fighter. I need to, if you're going to fight me, I should have one hand tied behind my back. And then he takes the knife and he stabs it through his own hand into the table and goes, or pin to the table. At this point, Arthur comes in, which we saw previously, and Slink says, Right on cue. Again, aware of the, the television nature of his existence, which I love. Arthur leaves, and Slink proposes a game. 20 questions for 20 punches. I will ask you a question, and for each answer I get, you can punch me in the face. Where are you and Karma from? And Grace says, Kansas, it's on the license plate, you idiot. Punch. Uh, How did your parents die? Another punch. So that's kind of this dynamic. And then we go into the future, and now they're both just drunk, and Slink's like, man, your life is just sad. Wow. Your life reads like one long depressing country song. It's just so funny to go from this like, I'm in control and I'm sassing you with my questions to cut immediately to, we're both drunk and I'm a little bit more relatable now. <laughs> I just think it's it's a great little character beat that I really enjoy. Uh, Grace can't take it anymore. Uh, they start fighting again. And Grace ends up ripping open Slink's shirt to reveal that he is completely ripped. <laughs> and Grace just looks at him and goes, what are you? And Slink goes, I'm fucking fabulous. Which, man, I would love to have just a splash of that level of confidence. <laughs> I'm fucking fabulous, baby. <laughs> Slink is such a good character. Like, I know I said in the previous episodes that I was jealous of the actress who got to play Aki because Aki was so interesting. Man, Slink has it all over Aki in spades. Like, he's such a fun, just playful character. He's just eating the scenery so much fun, and he will continue to do that in these upcoming episodes, and I love him! So we basically find out what Slink's plan is here. Slink hates Grace and Hard Enterprises, basically, because Hard Enterprises, because they're making the blood drive go to television, are ruining his vision, and he doesn't understand why Grace is so important to their show. Like, they say sometimes Grace wait, tests high, then she tests low, and then she's too naked, and then she's not naked enough. And all their terrible notes. You keep popping up. Make her get naked more. We need more boobies, boobies, boobies. Why does she always have to wear those stupid tool belts? Does she have to race with that top? I'm just sick of it. So why do you think I invited you here 
where I would seemingly have no advantage because there's no electricity. Because there's no cameras. Slink is planning to kill Grace here, just say, I don't know what happened, but now I can do the blood drive the way I want because Grace is out of the picture, which is the thing that Harp ke Hart keeps harping on. It's not a great plan, but it makes sense. It's not, it's not like a stupid plan. Like, there's logic behind it, so you can't get too upset with that. Uh, they fight for a little bit more. You can hear uh, Arthur starting to scream in the, the background. So Grace takes the knife, dives out of a window, and cuts down the noose. And we get a fight scene so that they can escape. During the fight scene... They also slip in the Wilhelm scream, which I always appreciate because if you don't know the Wilhelm scream, it's a very famous scream. Uh, it's used in every Star Wars movie, but the origins of the Wilhelm scream is from a Western, and the scream is actually man being eaten by alligators. So to throw in the Wilhelm scream is a nice nod to the genre. Uh, then a very unique thing happens here, and this is a thing that I have not been stressing enough, but... Arthur has a diary that he keeps. That's where he's writing down all of his clues to take down Hart Enterprises. Every time he learns something, he puts it in the notebook so he can use it as evidence later. Arthur ends up stealing the sheriff's gun after being wounded and is pointing the gun right between the sheriff's non-eyes. And the sheriff says, I can see you. I know everything about you. I know where you got that diary. And Arthur kills him. And I also want to note that... Actually, I won't note this now. There's a note. Remember this scene, because it's going to come up later. Arthur and Grace uh, meet up with the scholar. The scholar explains that he's not going to go with them. He's decided to stay here with the tinkerer. After all, the town needs a sheriff now. Which is so out of character for the scholar. Because the scholar is an awkward guy that likes to, like, toy with stuff. He wouldn't be assertive and, like, want the job of sheriff. It's all, like, very confusing. So this is, like, I feel like you could have made this arc of the scholar becoming the sheriff last more than an episode? It just felt weird. This is very clearly the we wanted to give the scholar a happy ending. Even though it's unearned. Not that the scholar doesn't deserve it. It's just very rushed and a thing to make people go, ah, at least the scholar turns out okay. I would have liked to have seen more of this character. I think the scholar is very interesting. It just, it bums me out that he goes from this kind of, like, sex toy slash, you know, meal ticket for the gentleman. And then once he's free of that, he immediately ends up in another relationship. And that, to me, just isn't just by this character. In any case, Grace and Arthur jump in the car. Slink watches them leave and mutters to himself... Left you live, right you die. Left you live, right you die. And then they turn right. 
And Slink shrugs, and that we take that to mean that he's now going to kill them. That or whatever's to the right is sure to kill them. Um, I don't really understand that moment, to be honest. Uh, I mean, there is like the symbolism of a left turn being a big change. So maybe they're trying to do wordplay. I don't quite understand what's going on in this moment. So now real quick, I'm going to tell you what happened with Christopher. Christopher and Aki are in this episode. Uh, Aki, for the first time, she wakes up alone and is like looking for Christopher and is very upset. Like she feels where his body was because they they had fallen asleep together and he's not there. Christopher is going out through Heart Enterprises with gaffer's tape over his robot eye and ducking cameras so that he can escape. He slips out through a door. It's a door on his side. But when he walks through it, he ends up outside and it closes and just becomes a brick wall, which is very nicely done. But now, Chris has escaped Heart Enterprises. He's actually done it. He's actually outside. He's walking through the streets. He finds some, like, newspaper on the ground. uh, And he finds the headline that human fracting has been made legal. So this whole taking people's bloods and using it for uh, energy... That's now all above board in the the world of Blood Drive. Which, by the way, I don't think I've mentioned this, takes place in 1999? Like, I found that out recently, that the, the time frame of this is supposed to be 1999, which is funny. He then makes it to Contra Crime, and Contra Crime is completely abandoned. It's completely ransacked and destroyed. I mean, the chief was killed by Christopher. They don't have Arthur anymore. They don't have Aki anymore. Like, I guess contra crime as a concept is no longer needed. He removes the tape from his eye as, uh, like, looters show up. And Aki sees this and just sprints there. Like, robot Terminator runs to get to Christopher. The gang explains that contra crime is gone. There's no cops anymore. And he's being threatened with a knife. And out of Christopher's eye, a metal spike comes out and hits him, hits this, like, criminal uh, right in the forehead. And he stumbles back. Christopher doesn't even realize what has happened. He's like, are you okay? And then blood just gushes out. Like, all the blood that was in his body comes gushing out of his forehead. This is very purposeful because the entire plot I told you with Arthur and Grace is almost entirely bloodless. It's a, there's like a moment where someone gets shot and then they hold their wound and it's like wet. Like it's not even like crimson. It's just kind of like a damp spot appears, which is the way like old school spaghetti Western John Wayne movies worked. Like, there'd be a gunshot, there'd be a bang, and then they would hold their their wound and grimace and fall over. Uh, everything that happens with Arthur and Grace is outside of Heart Enterprises. It's as far from Heart Enterprises can be. The cameras are not there. Heart Enterprises has no idea what's going on there. So there's no blood. But the killing of this gang member 
is done by Hart Enterprises. The Hart tech in Christopher's eye is what does it. And it is a bloodbath because that's what Hart wants. The Hart pumps the blood of blood drive. Just, I really do enjoy like those little details there. Uh, Aki arrives and she's like super in sexy mode. And Aki is like, I'm feeling something for the first time. I actually feel something. I think I feel love. They agree that they are done with Contra crime and that they are in love and they just do it in Contra crime. They just do it on one of the desks in Contra crime. When this happens, it changes Aki's eye color and she becomes human again. Uh, she starts to feel shame. It was the first time she ever like covers her body up. And there was something in that moment that changed her because she's now in true love with Christopher. Now, I want to say this, and I'm sorry if this is a spoiler for later, but this is my second time watching this. And I feel like there's a scene missing in this version that I'm watching. It might happen later, but I feel like it happened in this episode. Uh, There's this moment where they're talking, they're like, you must be becoming human because we're in love. My love has like set you free. Love is more powerful than the programming that Heart Enterprises put into you. I remember it then cuts to like a flashback of these two like programmers who are programming Aki and they're like, is there any chance that the system operation could fail? And the other guy goes, no, the only way that could happen is if she has an orgasm, like she'd figure that out. And then they giggle and then it cut back. Like I clearly have a memory of them confessing their love to one another and it being immediately undercut by it's not love, it's orgasms (laughs) that did this. It is purely like the chemical release of endorphins and not this concept of love, which I thought was very funny for this show. And I'm curious if it was cut out of like the DVD release because I'm, I, I, I purchased it through uh, YouTube uh, because I wanted to support this show. And I clearly remember that because it was one of my favorite jokes. It might just come up later. Like, it might be the reveal, oh, it's not love, it's, it was an orgasm, but I felt like it happened here. So if it doesn't, if, it's, if it is cut out, I want to make sure I mentioned it. And that's going to do it for episode number eight. Let's get into episode nine. Episode nine is the Chopsaki special. So <laughs> we are now going from a Western to a samurai movie or a kung fu movie more of a kung fu movie uh everything's very white and bright now and grace is racing looking for help because arthur does have that wound still she ends up right at the scar and when she gets to the scar the car starts to fail the navigation starts to fail It is nothing but white desert, like that pure white sand desert. And she looks around 
And there she sees a Chinese food restaurant. So they rush into the fast or the fast the Chinese food restaurant. It's full of almost every religion. <laughs> like it's like nuns and like a, a Tibetan monk are there, and it's just it's a very odd group of people who are eating at this restaurant. And Grace runs in and is like, you got to help me. My friend is hurt. And she goes, I'm sorry, but first aid is only for the customers. You have to order something. And she's like, no, really? And, she's like, and the girl's like, no, really, you have to order something. She's like, all right, give me the special. So they give, uh, they, they bring out a soup and they force feed Arthur the soup. And he immediately just passes out into the soup. So, this leads to Arthur in a dream world. He's kind of walking around the restaurant. No one else is there. He finds his own body on a table. And Aki shows up. And Aki says, I'm you. Like, this is your mind. This is your dream. You can't leave without learning something. And she opens up like a soup pot lid and jumps in. She's like, follow me. It is literally a rabbit hole. They are going to go down this rabbit hole into Arthur's mind. Now, what's actually happening is Grace is begging this woman to help Arthur and basically do surgery and get the bullet out. And... <laughs> It's, they have this very strange argument where Grace says something like, can you be less Chinese right now? And her response is, oh, you white people. I don't know if they're just calling out the fact that this is a very stereotypical uh, portrayal of Chinese culture, or I, I, this, this scene is all very strange to me. Um, this then ends in a fight and it turns out this, wo this old woman that works at the Chinese restaurant knows karate and Grace says now who's being stereotypical and she responds this used to be Springfield, Missouri the widest city in America Asian girls got to know how to defend herself it's just very strange. All of this is just very strange and awkward. <laughs> uh, Arthur, in his mind, is uh, walking around his happy place. And I do really love this scene. I think this scene says some very interesting stuff. He walks into a house where Grace is his wife. And she is like Mrs. Brady. She's just as sweet as pie, just the loving, doting wife. And they have a baby together. And <laughs> they're trying to decide what to name the baby. And Grace says, let's name the baby Ribbone. <laughs> 
By the way, this whole part shot like a sitcom, like very beautifully done, like clearly like a cheesy set. It's all very, very well done. Uh, they then decide, or Grace then decides, that it is time to feed the baby to the house because the house runs on blood. Because everything runs on blood. Uh, Arthur doesn't want their baby to be fed to the house, like, to be thrown in the garbage disposal. Aki the whole time is just like, ugh, this, none of this is real. Can we please go? I need another sip of drink. Uh, he pushes Grace away, and then all of a sudden Grace turns into a sex machine. And it's just like all over Arthur. She's now wearing like black lingerie and is like making out with uh, Arthur. And Aki says, and I love this, oh, you're exploiting her. And Arthur's like, I'm exploiting her? She's all over me. And Aki says, yeah. God, you're such a misogynist cliche. Chicks are either the Madonna or the whore to you. Which took me a moment because I thought of the singer. And I was like, oh no, actual, like, the Madonna. So it is his sexist mind that won't allow Grace to be a person in his mind because he's only can see her as wife material or sex material, which there may be men listening to this that are like, want to argue like, that's not what every man does, which I understand, but that's what he does. And he's like supposed to be the good guy. And that's still how his mind works. It's great character work here that I really appreciate. And also men should be better. Am I going to get letters? <laughs> the sheriff shows up and from the last episode that we know is dead and kills Grace, shoots right in the head. And Arthur's upset. Aki's like, don't worry about it. It's not real. We got to run. And then <laughs> Arthur's like, but if it's not real, why do we have to run? It's like, because you die in the dream, you die in real life. Because of course you do. They start running down this hallway of like his memories so he like opens a door and it's just like his fish that died. And he's like, oh, Jessica. It's just, it's, you know, all the fun things of like running through someone's mind. Uh, but all the doors are labeled 1031. Apparently that number is very important to Arthur, but he doesn't know why. We cut back to what's happening in reality with Grace and the woman who owns the restaurant. And Grace is now tied up because she attacked this woman who is a master fighter. And she explains that, you know, lots of people come here. They go on their spiritual journeys. He's currently on a journey. It depends on him as a fighter. There's only so much I can do on my end. It really depends on him. Uh, but lots of people come through here looking for stuff. And Grace goes, do they all get happy endings? Implying hand jobs, 
because that's an Asian stereotype, which is not great. And she goes, some of them, these don't. And then she points to like these jars. She's like, oh, are those herbs? She's like, no, those are the ashes of the people who don't, didn't get happy endings. Some people die here. It's just, to me, that is a great response to a racist joke. Is to just be like, oh, you're going to make jokes. Here's the real reality of the situation. I don't know if he's going to make it. You might be sitting here watching your friend die. So maybe, you know, focus up. <laughs> I just like how that's handled. So this is, to me, a very strange choice. And they, they kind of self-correct here, but I still think it's a, a very odd choice. And, like, I feel like I'm missing something here. They go down to the second layer of his subconscious, and it's Pixie Swallow. Pixie Swallow? Are you serious? Why would the key be there? Pixie Swallow is where the cannibal restaurant, or the cannibal diner was from, like, episode two, maybe episode three. I don't understand the symbolism of that. I find it to be very strange. I don't know why they chose this location. But they walk into the diner, and basically everyone that Arthur knows are at the diner, and they are framed like it's the Last Supper. Like, they're all frozen and not moving, but it's clearly the Last Supper. And... Arthur goes, of course, we have Mary Magdalene being played by Grace. But why is Ribbone a rabbi? And Aki goes, Not everything has to mean something. Why is Clown Dick wearing a cocktail dress? Which is a great little, like, escape hatch to throw into this. Because now any meaning that I draw from this is brilliant. Like anything that I can be like, oh, this is paralleling this and all the other things that I've said about this show that I love, that I've like picked out, whether or not that's even the intention, it's just my interpretation of things I love. And then anything that I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. I now have permission from the show to ignore so I can go back to enjoying the show. Thank you so much, show, for doing that. <laughs> Way to build in that escape hatch. Now, there's a key, because there's a key to everything that Arthur needs to find, and it's sitting in the middle of this uh, tableau, and Arthur is told not to disturb anybody. And as he reaches over to grab the key, he accidentally sweats onto rib bone, and everybody wakes up. So he runs into the kitchen, where the cannibal diner was, uh, the, the cook was and everything, and finds Aki tied up. But no matter what he does, he can't free her. Because you can't save everybody, Arthur. Maybe that's what you need to learn. Suddenly Slink shows up, and it's unclear, based on the rules of Slink, if it technically really is Slink. Because he's acting very Slink-esque, but it is still it could still be Arthur's interpretation of Slink. It's debatable, because Slink has magic meta powers. And then we get to... Super duper reveal time. So get, I want you to pour yourself a drink, sit back, because all the reveals are coming. Back in reality, Grace and this woman are now kind of friends, and they're trying to pick, like, fragments of bones and things like that from the wound out. And 
there's like a sadness and groaning coming from Arthur. And what's happening in the dream world is Arthur has been captured by Slink and Christopher, who are torturing him. But the torture is very similar to what's happening in reality. Like they're reaching the, his their hands into Arthur and like messing with his organs, while in reality they're taking tweezers and pulling out little bits of shrapnel. It's good symmetry. Uh, the the woman at the restaurant mentions that the cries of pain are not something that she's ever going to get used to. She's heard them many times before. The first time she heard them, it was from her daughter when this happened to her. Her daughter, Aki. So now we know Aki was a real person. And we can now kind of gleam that they took Aki the person and turned her into Aki bots, multiple. So it makes sense why Aki is the spirit guide for Arthur, because it's actually Aki's mother who is guiding him out of this peril because she's doing surgery on him. There's nice, like, parallels all over the place here. Uh, things then start to get a bit uh, dicey in reality when Grace finds a picture of karma in her in the Chinese restaurant. She doesn't get an answer to why that picture is there, but clearly that's going to be important. They then tell in the dream world, Arthur, that they are planning a Prometheus feast. This, oh, if you're paying attention... This is such a great moment. A Prometheus feast. They are going to cut parts of Arthur off and eat them and then poop them out. Slink's words. But they're not going to kill him. They're going to let him heal so they can do it to him over and over again. Prometheus, in in myth, uh, was punished in this way for stealing fire from the gods. He stole fire from the gods and gave it to the mortals, so they tied him up, and he was eaten alive by ravens, I believe, every day as punishment. He would then heal and then be eaten again by the ravens. When we go back to when Slink was fired, and he was no longer in charge of the race, the words used are... You can steal fire from a god, but he will get his revenge. He stole your fire, your thunder, and your job. The stealing of fire is like, you would think it means stealing your fire, stealing your thunder, you know, like your momentum. But it could, since he is the god of the stage, the idea of them stealing the fire, the fact that Hart is more focused on Arthur and Grace than they are the true art project of the uh, race is Arthur stealing fire from a god. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. You could also say that stealing the thunder is a reference to Zeus. But like these, this mythology references that they snuck in this bloody show. Mwah, chef kiss. I think I've already done that this episode. So that's two chef kisses for Blood Drive in one episode. Arthur starts to die, which is why they can't talk about the karma things. Uh, So, Grace, in another beautiful moment, starts giving her blood to Arthur. 
So the symbolism here is so good because the woman's screaming like, he's lost too much blood, he's not going to make it. You don't have enough. You'll die saving him. And she's like, that's fine. The whole idea of this show was we've gotten to the point where fuel is no longer, is so expensive, like gasoline, that it is more valuable than a human life. So we're now going to use blood, human lives, as fuel because fuel is more valuable than a human life. Grace is now using her fuel, her blood, to save a human life. This is such a well-written show, guys. It really is. Like, I know the joke of the previous episode of Stay Doomed was me saying the subtle, nuanced writing. But the subtle, nuanced writing here, like, I mean, you might think that they're kind of hitting you over the head with the metaphor, but I think it's very well done. This arc of grace of seeing people as fuel and seeing blood as fuel more valuable than human life, and then using it to save a human life is so good. The allusions to mythology are so good. Uh, this gives Arthur the power to fight back. He grabs a bottle of soy sauce and smashes it over Christopher's head so he eats himself? I don't understand that at all. Not everything has to mean something. He then reaches the third level of his mind, and the sheriff is there. And the sheriff crucifies him, like literally crucifies him, to show that, like, again, th this might be a bit over the head here, but, like, he's crucified, he's going to rise again, he is the only good thing left in this world, and now he's planning to save everyone by taking down heart, like... It's, it's, you know, it's not subtext. It's just text now. And he forces Arthur to watch a memory. Way back in episode one, we had a sob story from... that I, I called it that. I called it a sob story. Where Arthur explains to Christopher that when he was young, he was stealing food. And he got caught and the cop let him go. We're now seeing that moment. Arthur has snuck in. He's stealing food. The cop sees him. He panics and just fires his gun. And then the cop is like, oh, you're just a kid. Or <laughs> the cop first thinks he's a robo. <laughs> he's like, are you a rob robot? What color do you bleed? Uh, he then realizes it's just a kid looking for food. And he's like, okay, I'm going to let you go. And he, Arthur goes to leave. He goes, wait, you forgot something. He gives him the bag full of food. He's like, really? It's like, yeah, you're just a kid. Like, try to keep your nose clean, but it's important that you, you know, try to live your life. And then he falls over. He realizes that that gunshot had ricocheted and had actually caught him. So the cop that Arthur talks about that had saved his life, Arthur had actually killed by mistake. And with his dying breath, he hands a notebook over to Arthur and says, this is everything that I know about what's going on here. There's some bigger conspiracy here. If you want to make this right, hold on to this book and do everything you can to make this world a better place. 
and then the cop dies, and his badge number is 1031. Then it gets a little hazy. <laughs> Arthur takes the gun from the sheriff and shoots himself in the chest, I guess to wake him up from the dream. Uh, Grace wakes up on the floor of the Chinese food restaurant. Arthur is gone, and next to her is a bill and a to-go foil swan (laughs) from the restaurant. She runs out and looks for Arthur, and she can't find him. And she sits down, she opens up her bill. It was $14 for the special, and she has a fortune cookie. She opens the fortune cookie, and of course the lucky numbers are 1031. She sits down, the restaurant has vanished, Arthur has vanished, and she screams. Uh, So one interesting thing I really want to say about this episode is it's more condensed. We do not see actual Slink or actual Aki at any point during these episodes. Uh, They all take a backseat to the journey that Arthur is going through. Uh, I think, especially with the next episode coming up, as I do really like this episode, there's some great uh, symbolism here. Uh, It reminds me of the dream episode of Buffy. There's an episode of Buffy where, like, they have finally killed some sort of demon, so they're just going to, like, hang out and watch a movie together. And as soon as the movie comes on, they all pass out and fall asleep. And then it's nothing but symbolism for the rest of the time. Like, in Buffy's dream, uh, her mom is, like, behind a wall. And is like, Buffy, I think you could tear this wall down. There'd be no boundaries between us if you just did something. Buffy's like, not right now. (laughs) Uh, And they tell Buffy at some point, like, uh, get back before dawn. And that foreshadows things. I won't spoil Buffy for you. Uh, But it's that same kind of like everything is surreal and like symbolic. And you could probably watch this episode a couple times and get a bunch of different uh, interpretations from it. And symbolism for symbolism's sake, I always think is a bit heady and like fart smelly. But the fact that Aki actually says like, not everything means something like the fact that they give you that like escape hatch, as I call it, to just like move on without it. It it saves it for me. (laughs) It really, truly does. Episode 10, Scott Tissue. Scar tissue that you wish you saw. Ain't didn't know it all. And a bun and a bun and a pepper and a bird of shit. Bird of shit is so lonely. If you- I'm not going to keep going. I'm sorry. I might even cut that. That was terrible. Uh, in any case, Arthur is in the desert and he's dying because he's in the desert. And. Like a mirage, he just kind of stumbles into a town. And there's these two girls selling lemonade. And he just takes the pitcher and chugs it. And they're like, what the hell? That costs money. (laughs) And he's like, sorry. And this guy comes out. He's like, what did you just do to my little girls? I'm just kidding. Welcome, stranger. Everyone's welcome here. Welcome 
to Cronenberg. Now, if you know Cronenberg, Cronenberg monsters are people who have been unbelievably disturbed. You probably might know the reference from Rick and Morty when they created the Cronenberg universe accidentally. But the idea of the wordplay of Cronenberg, like Pittsburgh, (laughs) is great. I love that they did this. It's very fun. Uh, Arthur's walking around this town and he's like, oh, what a wonderful place. It is like, it's a beautiful area. It's, it, it invokes feelings of when they find the town in uh, The Walking Dead, where like everything around it is terrible. For, for some reason, this is just a normal neighborhood where everything's happy. But they do make a point that everywhere they go, there's like a weird green gas. Meanwhile, uh, Slink has been called in for more notes. And they realize that whatever thing in their contract that made that they couldn't kill Slink, they've worked their way around through paperwork. Slink has been fired. He's no longer in charge of the race. It should be noted, as they're leaving, the man in white, the, the man who paints his fingernails pink, is also licking a lollipop. And a lollipop is very uh, evokes images of Grace, because Grace always has a lollipop. I have not mentioned that until now, because it hasn't been important until now. But it's definitely trying to establish some sort of connection between this man and Grace, who for some reason really wants Grace to stay alive. Soon after uh, Arthur makes it to Cronenberg, he's now more than happy to just lay down and enjoy laying in a field and uh, enjoying Cronenberg when Grace finds him. Grace is able to drive in and find... uh, Arthur, and there's a great moment where Arthur's just enjoying the sunshine and looks up and sees Grace and goes, oh, Grace. And Arthur likes, and then she stomps up to Arthur and he's like, oh, you're mad. And then she just punches him. I enjoyed that. I thought that was fun. That was good laughs. Uh, Grace is like, come on, we got to go. Like, I need revenge for my sister. We got to get moving. Like, you're safe now. Like, let's get out of here. And Arthur's like, no, maybe this is our reward for doing good things. Like, let's just enjoy this. This, to me, reeks of two different people wrote these episodes and didn't realize they were going to go right next to each other based on their themes. Because episode nine is all about Arthur's mission. Arthur is bound to this diary because he murdered someone who showed mercy to him. He murdered who might be the only good cop left on the planet. Arthur killed. So now it is his job to pick up that mission. To immediately then go to this uh, episode where he's immediately okay with just staying in Cronenberg forever really hurts his character. Now, granted, we are going to find out that there are other things at play here. But I think it would be stronger if Arthur wasn't so fast. Like, if he put up a fight to be like, I have to do better. Like, people out there need help. I can't just ignore them and stay here. We needed more of that 
so that his fall here means something and also doesn't erase everything we worked really hard for in the previous episode. Uh, Grace and Arthur end up at this big party. Grace is being, like, feisty and, and mean. And the the person who I thought was a mayor, but he's more of, like, a preacher, says, like, it's okay, Grace. Just take a deep breath and rethink things. She takes a deep breath, and all of a sudden she's giggly. <laughs> <laughs> Did I just giggle? Which is something we've never seen before. Uh, Arthur is sitting down at a table with... Uh, a lovely couple, and the uh, man says that he's retiring as a cobbler. He's the town cobbler, and he wants Arthur to take his place. And he's like, I don't know how to do that. It's like, oh, you'll be fine. Uh, he's like, well, I can't say no to the birthday boy. It's like, well, it's not my birthday. It's like, oh, um, anniversary? He's like, no, this is my wake. I will be dead soon. And it is my job to pass everything I have to somebody. I want you to not only be the cobbler, but I want you to take my wife. Take my wife, please. Yeah, da 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 da. Meanwhile, Grace like goes outside to to like powder her nose because she kind of has butterflies about a guy she just met. So she goes to powder her nose. She opens her compact, and in the mirror she can see the reality of Cronenberg. Guess what? They're all mutants. I know. <laughs> the fact that it was called Cronenberg might have given that away. But they are all mutants. There is a gas in the air that makes you see what you want to see, which is lovely and peaceful. But it doesn't work on mirrors for some reason. I don't know why. Uh... As soon as the, the preacher sees that Grace has a mirror, he takes it from her and is like, oh, that's vanity. Vanity's a sin. We, we, don't, we don't do that here. We don't want vain people here. So I'm taking that. Uh, so in other words, this is that game We Happy Few. I'm not sure if you guys played We Happy. It wasn't very good, but like the gas joy is kind of being thrown through everyone and everybody's like enjoying life even though it's not real. Uh, we then see Slink, who uh, is asked uh, what he wants to eat in very complicated handcuffs. And he's like, ah, just something, you know, like a salad, because I'm trying to watch my figure. He's like, oh, wow, good for you. Most people want, like, something big for their last meal. He's like, last meal? It's like, oh, yeah, they're killing you. It's like, oh, oh, no. It's like, yeah, sorry, things are taking a bit long here. The guy who, like, usually helps me is out, so I'm in charge of all this stuff and I don't know how to do anything. Like, I have to do the mileage uh, kickbacks for the blood drive? So it's his job to reimburse people for their mileage in blood drive, which is like, it doesn't make any sense, but that's kind of the joke. And Slink's like, oh, I could show you a really good way to do that. Uh, if you want. He's like, oh, that'd be great. He's like, well, you gotta release me. He's like, ah, I'm not supposed to do that. He's like, all right, see what happens when you screw this up then. How do you think Hard Enterprise is gonna take that? So, of course, he lets Slink go. And he's like, okay, let's just start with an easy one. What's the mileage on, ah, Grace and Arthur? 
and says, oh, it's about 320 miles. And he takes a compass out and he goes, see, you're able to figure out that uh, if they've traveled 320 miles, that they can only be in this circle, which the only town that they could possibly be in is Cronenberg. The guy's like, how does that help? It's like, well, it helps me. He stabs him with a compass. <laughs> Fun. Back in Cronenberg, Grace is now trying to cover her mouth so she doesn't breathe in the gas, and she's slowly starting to see the way the town actually looks. It's destroyed. It's gross. Uh, everyone is, like, terribly deformed. And... Uh, Arthur is fully drinking the Kool-Aid. He's about to marry uh, the cobbler's uh, wife, because they've taken the cobbler because he believed he was terminally ill and they just threw him into this like pit. They like sacrifice him to the scar. Uh, they're then planning to do the same thing with grace. Uh, and because Arthur is so in the gas, when he sees grace, grace is dancing and is like, I'm so happy to become one with the scar. But in reality, she's tied up and she's screaming. It's, you know, interesting storytelling. Uh, Grace gets thrown into the pit when Slink shows up. Slink is wearing a, a gas mask. He didn't go full plague mask, which I think was a missed opportunity. Uh, but he's wearing a mask, so he actually sees everything correctly. The two little girls out front, terribly uh, disfigured. They offer him le uh, lemonade. It's actually dog pee. That's a weird thing to miss. But that means that Arthur drank pee, and that's a good laugh. Uh, Slink comes in, and uh, there just happens to be a convenient uh, cement truck. And he starts paving in the pit that is releasing this gas. Uh, Grace in the pit, though, is now getting buried in wet cement, which is not is not good for her. Uh, Arthur ends up also falling into the hole because it's kind of just for clumsy reasons. And Slink explains to the people of the church. He actually gets on the stage of this church and starts out preaching the preacher that's been in charge this whole time and explains that none of this is true. This isn't Cronenberg. This is Cleveland? Uh, Arthur, gas from the scar was causing hallucinations. It's crazy, huh? But since I plugged the hole, or should I say you plugged the hole, this town can finally see itself for what it really is. Cleveland. <laughs> like, he actually says that this place actually is Cleveland. And that, uh... Everything is a lie, and this man has lied to you, and now you see the truth. And he yells down the hole and says, uh, how, how are you doing down there, lovebirds? And they're slowly being buried by concrete. It's like, listen, I have a, a bit of a proposal for you. Uh, you can either die in this hole, or you can come with me on one last adventure. So what's your choice? Die or drive? And they're about to answer when all of a sudden people want to fight him because the effects of the gas are wearing off because the, the gas is being cut off by the wet cement. 
And Slink goes on a full preacher outrage, explaining like, I want you to all believe for a moment of what this reality is and that this man lied to you. And notice that he is not deformed because he has the cure and he kept it from you. Yes, believe me, he is the evil. You need to believe in me. And the preacher says, don't listen to this man. This man is the devil. He's like, I may be the devil, but I bring truth to you. And I tell you that this man has lied to you. And then they, the people of Cronenberg kill the preacher. And Slink says, yeah. Now we can all be miserable. This is quite the commentary on the idea of religion. Because what this is basically saying is religion is a lie, but an effective one. Like those who have religion, it may not be real or correct, but it makes them happy. So who is Slink to come in and destroy their faith and take away their happiness? And a person who comes in and tempts you away from your faith is the devil. Like, literally, that is what the devil does. So when the preacher says this man is the devil, it's the truth. But the devil is bringing reality to them instead of faith. And he admits by saying, like, now we can all be miserable together, that ignorance is bliss. Like, Slink could have come in simply grabbed Arthur and Grace, shown them the truth, and then left with them alone. And Cronenberg would have still existed as a happy community. Sure, there are people who were being sacrificed to the scar, but they were happy about it. So would you rather be happy or right? And, you know, I'm not going to make fun of religion or say that you shouldn't be religious, but... I am going to examine this take on religion, and this take on religion is a very fascinating one, where it it doesn't devalue religion, but it also doesn't value the truth. Like, it shows the merit of religion for the people who enjoy it. And how the people on the outside cannot. It's just, it's very well done and very interesting. Meanwhile, down in the hole, Grace and uh, Arthur are flirting. Like, it's not about sex. It's actually like they're just kind of being cute. Because now, like, they actually have feelings for each other, which is kind of nice. And Slink's like, all right, sorry about that. I had to cause an uprising. You guys good to go? And they're completely submerged, giving thumbs up. So Slink then gets them out, and they are covered in uh, cement. Uh, Oh, I forgot this line. This line is great. While they're uh, very close to each other flirting in the cement, Grace does say, is the cement drying, or are you just happy to see me? Which is just fun. We end our episode with Slink annoyed, but he knows, like, his plan is, again, very obvious. He wants to bring Grace and Arthur back to the race 
because in bringing them back, he is giving Hart what they want, and thus he should be allowed to be in charge of his race again. So that's why he went from wanting to kill them to then bringing him back into the race. Uh, really quickly, during all this, there were, of course, intercuts with Aki and Christopher. I'm going to go through them really quickly. Uh, Aki has a bad dream. It's the first time she's ever had a dream. Uh, Aki now believes that uh, since Heart Enterprises made her do horrible things to Christopher, she wants to hurt Heart Enterprises. So now the plan is... We're getting out of here. Aki and Christopher are going to go and find Arthur. With Aki still being a robot and Christopher's eye, they should be able to do that. Uh, they, Aki builds like a car for them. There's like a car making montage and they hit the road. The further and further away from Heart Enterprises they get, Aki gets sicker and sicker and starts puking pretty colors because that's what happens when you're a robot. You puke pretty colors. Aki is like, Christopher, I love you. We need to do this, but there's something in my programming that won't let me leave. You have to leave me here. Christopher's like, I don't want to do that. Aki's like, you have to. But first, taste my rainbow. And they kiss. Never going to have Skittles again. So those are those three episodes of Blood Drive. Um, I think I'm going to have a lot to say about the last couple episodes. I have a lot to say about these three episodes, so we'll probably call it here. But these three episodes are very interesting. I like them all separately. I think the they kind of are pulling the same trick where there's no blood and no gore in this town in the, the Western episode. One, to fit more of the Western pastiche. And also to show, like, we are completely away from heart, so there is no blood. But that trick would work a lot better if it wasn't right after Shitty Ogre. <laughs> like, we just did this trick. It's less impressive now. Had you given me an episode in between where I could forget that you've pulled this stunt once, I would have been okay with it. The Dream Sequence episode is great. But again, we are now, like, we're so removed from what the show used to be. And this could be because Slink is not around. Like, we know for a fact that Slink, in the previous episode, was not in charge of the race because he was busy fighting Grace. In this episode, we are completely removed from the race. So it could be because Slink is not around and getting called into more meetings and stuff like that. So we have another departure from what the show should be. Just, it's a great episode, but it's another departure. And then this episode with the Cronenberg uh, has really great writing and great like uh, uh, morality play about religion and the different philosophies of it. Like it does the perfect thing where an atheist could watch that episode and be like, see, this is why religion is stupid. And a religious person could watch that and go, see, that's why it's important to have faith. Like, that's that's when something's really perfectly written. But we are so far removed from the blood drive. Like, that's three full episodes without the blood drive. And I think it would hurt it especially more if I wasn't binging it. Like, if I had to watch this week to week, at this point, even though it's kind of the point, 
I would be saying, what happened to my fun blood show? Why did it become this? Uh, I just, I think it's a bit foolish to have it structured this way. Uh, I think what you could have done is kind of given Arthur and uh, Grace a break and done a full episode for the Scholar and had the Scholar's arc of leaving the race. Uh, because I think what you would have, what I would have done is I would have done an episode with the Scholar because the last thing we see the Scholar do after the gentleman dies is he fist pounds Slake. It would make sense for the Scholar to then not really know how to be the scholar without the gentleman and just turn into that same type of person for Slink. And then we can see him be like, wait, I'm just doing this to myself again. Then he can find love. Then he can leave. And if that took place, like, in the blood drive, I think it would be more effective than, than what we currently got, where it's just like, convenient woman showed up and stole the scholar's heart. And now he's gone. Don't worry, he's happy. I just think that's a bit of a misstep. Uh, but overall, I really like these episodes separately. I do feel like this creates a worry in me in that I love those first seven episodes because it was such a roller coaster. I think that's the best way to say it. The first seven episodes are a roller coaster ride. And then these are more of like a Disney dark ride where it's not about the thrills and chills. It's more about the atmosphere and the moods being created. And it's jarring to go from a roller coaster to that type of ride. And now with only three episodes left, like they've dumped a lot of plot and a lot of symbolism and a lot of good stuff, but what's the ending going to be? Is it going... It's, are they going to go back onto a roller coaster? Are we going to have an epic finale? Or are we going to have a mood finale? I mean, Slink says that it's a mood piece. Heart says that it's a bloodbath. Which one are we even supposed to be cheering for? It's just... It's very interesting. All of this is very interesting. It's very well done. It's not quite what... These three episodes feel so removed that it... It, it feels like we've fallen out of groove, but the new groove isn't that bad. It's just different. It's kind of like when you've been playing the same video game for a long time, and then you try to start playing another game and the buttons are different. Like, that game's not bad. It's just like, oh, it's not, I'm not hitting the way I'm used to. Have I done enough metaphors to explain why these three episodes are good but different? Because I could do more if you really want to. But that's going to do that for this episode of Stay Doomed. Uh, plan for the schedule is uh, the next episode, the final episode of Stay Doomed's uh, review of Blood Drive should come out on Friday. We're going to try to do the two episodes in one week thing again because we got to get into Razzy Month. Lara's not here, so I got to do the voice. Uh, I'm not sure what we'll be watching uh, for our first Razzy movie, but the Razzy movies are out. Uh, let me just do a quick rundown, I guess, of the Razzie movies so you can jump in wherever you want. 
right, up for worst picture. These are the five episodes for Ratty Month we will be doing. It is Blonde, which is the story of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Disney's Pinocchio, not to be confused with uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is up for Oscars. Uh, Good Morning, which is a stoner comedy with uh, Modson as the director. Uh, The King's Daughter, and oh yeah, it's Morbin time. Morbius. So get excited. We'll be covering all five of those films very, very soon. Uh, We'll probably watch Pinocchio first. I know it's on Disney+. Plus. I'm not saying definitely, but that would be my guess if you're going to watch along with us. And if you want to be one of our fabulous patrons, uh, I was going to. I'm not sure if we're we're still going to do it, but we're going to watch the last episode of Blood Drive together. I don't know if my patrons have kept up on watching it, but hopefully we'll schedule that soon and we'll watch Blood Drive together. But uh, if you would like to be a lovely patron, go to patreon.com slash plus two comedy. You can join. You talk to us on our Discord. You can help make decisions. And we also talk about Disney a lot. It's fun. Uh, also, you can reach us at thestaydoomshow at gmail.com. And if you want to talk to me about the blood drive, I'm at plus two comedy on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, until next time, stay doomed.